You see, the, the purpose of, of our gathering is not just to hear my thoughts on anything. It's to, for all of us to have our stories, to share our stories and encourage each other with how God is repurposing us. And we look at the book of Ephesians, which I hope you'll turn your Bibles to chapter 2. When you look at the book of Ephesians, you're going to see God has repurposed us from what we were to what he's always desired we'd become. And he does it with love and encouragement, not with regret and shame. And so hopefully all of us will sit in these chairs and be able to tell our story about how God took us from what we were to what he's always wanted us to be. Uh, If you're visiting uh, Christ Church, my name is Mark, and I get the privilege of being one of the ministers here at the church. And we're glad you're with us as we're studying this repurposed theme through Paul's letters to a group of Christians who lived in a town called Ephesus. Its application is so important to us today. Uh, I'd like to begin by reminding you where we've been. In chapter 1, what you can clearly see is that uh, Paul is showing us what possessions we have in Christ, what we have in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what he's given us in salvation and in sanctification and in purpose. And then in chapter 2, he talks about our position with Christ. Because of what we have in Christ, how are we repositioned or, if you will, repurposed for something greater? Last week, we talked about two words that were found in verse 4 of chapter 2 where it says, but God. But God acted. But God responded. God saw our condition and he performed only what he could do to give us an opportunity to be made new, to have a new opportunity in life and a new purpose. But we live in a divisive world, don't we? It doesn't take uh, anybody with you know, any great education to look in our world and read the headlines, and we live in a divided world. It's as old as when Cain killed Abel. Men have been positioning themselves one over the other and doing whatever it takes to gain that position. Paul wants us to understand we don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to, to understand that division is not a necessary thing. Division is an unnecessary thing based on the work of Christ. But we live in a divided world. You see it in the Middle East, Somalia, Afghanistan. Shoot, let's just go to our own country. You see right in our own country, in Ferguson, in Baltimore, in Philadelphia, in Chicago, and on the West Coast. Major cities divided by things like power, by race, by education, money. We just live in a divisive world. We're seeing it around us all the time. Someone said the American melting pot is not quite melted. It's still broken into large chunks where everyone's posturing themselves to be more superior and significant to everyone else. You see it in families, husbands and wives with walls between them, walls that are just too hard to even try to scale and overcome. You have families where children cannot say they're sorry to their parents and there's no forgiveness. You see divisions all over the place. Christians are divided. Churches are divided. People fighting over things that are just opinions, just flavors, just things that they like, and we fight over it. Dr. Patrick Mead said to his church a few years ago, uh, in a memorable moment for me, he said, division is not our duty, it is a sin. To, To feel like as a Christian, I can divide my church over something that Jesus has not made important, but we make important. That's not our duty. We're not the protectors of what is right. We're to follow the Holy Spirit's leading as God leads us and reveals us this, what is right and righteous and good. So it's not our duty, it's a sin. Nations, communities, families, Christians, churches, you can go online. We live in an imperfect world. We all know it. We all feel it. We all have divisions of close friends who are no longer close with, neighbors we no longer speak with, business partners we'd never do business again with. Division seems to be more commonplace to the point that many of us think being divided is just the way it has to be. But God, 
Remember, whenever your position isn't what God wants it to be, God will move, God will act, and he did. Let's begin in verse 11. I'd like to just call this section of Paul's text, without God's grace, and if you're keeping track and notes today, I'd like you to write next to that the word without. It's the word that Paul uses when he talks about where we've been, what we were, and what he never wanted us to be, and the answer is without. Verse 11. Therefore, alluding to everything that Paul has said previous, and I, I say this often, I hope, I hope I say it so much you roll your eyes at me, because I want you to remember this. The Bible was not written with chapters and verses, segmented out. Those were done by scholars later years so we could index quickly and get to points in the Bible by a numbering system. But Paul wrote this letter, it would have been read in its entirety. So you can't say, well, he was talking about that, now he's talking about this. No, he's not. When he says, therefore, he's telling you everything I've told you about what God has given you in Christ and what he wants to do with you because of your sin by grace. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, that's just a word for those that were not Jewish, those of you that were non-Jewish by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at the time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Why is the world divided? Paul tells us. Because we're missing key things. He, he just lists five of them. Without Christ, there's no Savior. With no Savior, there's shame. With no Savior, there's a bunch of futile efforts to get better. And without a Savior, our past still haunts us. We're without citizenship. That doesn't mean a whole lot to us in the Western culture, but back then, being a part of a patriarchal system, being a part of a family, and having a family that you could call your own, that you were welcome in, and that was a part of what you were, that mattered. And he says, the problem in the world today is people don't have a place without a covenant, without a promise, with, without a relationship with God that allows them to say, God will cover what I can't. They were without hope, desperation. Most people, uh, I, in fact, I heard someone tell me, it's, Paul Smith told me this week that they've defined what suicide happens because people don't think their circumstances will ever change. They're without hope. They don't, they don't believe that there's a tomorrow that's going to be any better than today and yesterday was. And then Paul says they're without God, which is where he wants to land us, without God in this world, without someone to protect us and care for us and be superior when we're not anywhere close you see, the reason there's divisions in this world is not just a preacher saying, well, the reason we're all divided is we don't go to church. Absolutely not. The reason we don't go to church is because we don't have a God. And without a God to give us purpose and to give us forgiveness and to give us strength and to, to, to help us become better, then we just live these aimless lives of getting what we can while we can at the cost of everybody else. We live in a divided world. And we're without. The second thing that Paul points out here is, but when we have God's grace, which is what he talked about in the first 10 verses of chapter 2, when we have God's grace, we have peace. Now, I remember being a kid in the early 70s when all the long-haired guys wearing the girls' shirts walked by and went, peace. So I grew up thinking that's what peace was. There's some hippie dude who just didn't want to have a job, and he was just, peace out, man. Peace is a huge word in the New Testament to the point that I wonder if I understand it at all. 
Probably the the most well-rounded word in your entire Bible is the word shalom. It means wholeness, completeness. It's not only right with God, it's right with my fellow man, it's even right with myself. I'm living this life of integrity and balance, a balance of forgiveness and purpose. It's a beautiful word. Without is a dangerous word. Peace is a fulfilling word. And the grace that we talked about last week brings to all of our lives peace. Let's look at verse 13 through 15. But now in Christ Jesus, if you're old school and have a physical Bible with you, I'd encourage you to go to verse 4 and underline but God, and then go to verse 13 and underline but in Christ Jesus. Paul's using terminology here to show us what he's doing. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away from, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made, us the, has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the laws with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. God acted when we were lost in sin, and Jesus is acting on those who have been saved by grace, but now Jesus is working to, and it's interesting here, he calls it the dividing wall of hostility. Now to me, growing up in the era that I grew up in, I don't know what dividing wall is. Now I remember the Brady Bunch episode where Peter and uh, Greg put the line in the middle of the room so they divided their room. Anybody old enough to remember that? Anybody know the Brady Bunch? I'm about out of illustrations. Okay, so there's this dividing wall. My brother Scott and I had this room that we shared. We had bunk beds, and there were certain parts of the room that were ours, and the other person couldn't go in it without permission except when he wanted to because he could beat me up. There was always this dividing wall of hostility. But I want to show you when Paul uses that term, it wasn't as goofy as those. It had significance. I want to show you an image of what the area of the temple in Jerusalem would have looked like. It was an interesting a place to worship God that was divided. If you look at the inner temple, the court of priests segmented off for the priests to serve in their duties. Surrounding that was the court of Israel. Let's just rephrase that, the men. It was a place for men to gather, and then beyond that was the women's court, where the women would stay out in the area called the treasury. And they could see into the area, but they couldn't participate. And then around that, horrifically, was this enclosure called the Court of Gentiles, outside of the whole building. And if, I, if my research is accurate, the wall would have been about two or three feet tall, and it would have just told the Gentiles, you can draw close to God, but not as close as those folks. So when Paul said that Jesus came to break down the walls that divide us, the walls of hostility. I believe his audience would have known he was directing them toward when the temple curtain tore on the day he was crucified, there's no more walls keeping people from drawing close to Christ and to his God. It's a beautiful image there that we don't get in our culture because we don't have these. Or maybe we do. I'm told in Hebrew and in Latin, or excuse me, in Hebrew, or excuse me, I'll read right, Latin and Greek, the words were written for the Gentiles in the court of Gentiles that it was by punishment of death if they would cross that wall into the areas reserved for the Jews. Verse 15. That Jesus might reconcile them both in one body. Can you imagine what body that was? It was the one that hung on the cross. That in one body to God through the cross, by it having been put to death the enmity, and, have, and he came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. 
And through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Paul knew when he was bringing that up that those that were outside the walls could come inside the walls, and those that were inside the walls could draw even closer. You see, it was in 1978, uh, former Minnesota Senator and Vice President uh, Hubert Humphrey became very sick and passed away. There was a memorial service held for him in the U.S. Capitol Rotunda, and all the dignitaries of the world gathered because he was an honorable man and well-respected. Richard Nixon was there that day, and if you don't know what 1978 means, let me just simply tell you, in 1974, he left the office of president in disgrace for illegal actions he performed while our president. And just a few years later, Senator Humphrey, when he knew that his time was drawing to a near, phoned ex-president uh, Nixon and asked him to come to his memorial service. It would be the first time Nixon would return to Washington since he left that day in humiliation and disgrace. Uh, Newsweek magazine reported that Howard Baker was quoted as saying nobody would talk to Nixon that day. Everybody was afraid of him. And so Nixon and his secret servant agent stood in the corner of the room by themselves. Uh, it was a dark moment, sad moment for everybody. And they said that awkward, ostracizing moments occurred over and over until one person decided to walk across that room. And that one person was our president, Jimmy Carter, who was a Christian. And they say that Carter walked across the room, went over to Nixon, shook his hand, and said, Mr. President, welcome back to Washington. And in that moment, Newsweek records that all the other dignitaries had permission to go across the dividing wall of hostility and offer grace and mercy to a man who had been humiliated long enough. There's another story at a, maybe a lesser significant level. It was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and a young baseball player named Jackie Robinson was appearing for the first time in Pittsburgh, and the things being said to this young black athlete who had the audacity to play Major League Baseball, things thrown at him, names said about his family and about himself, it was putrid, it was gross, and finally, a man who was playing shortstop for the Brooklyn Dodgers that day named Pee Wee Reese, who was born and raised in Georgia, one of the most divided racial states in the Union at the time, Pee Wee Reese went across the infield, put his arm around Jackie Robinson's shoulder, and stood there with him while bottles and rocks and things were thrown at him until finally the entire Pittsburgh team came out of the dugout and told their fans, cut it out. Robinson said in his biography, it was at that moment that everything changed for him. When one person walked across the room and welcomed an ex-humiliated president back, or one shortstop walked across from the deep south and put his arm around a black athlete and said, he's my teammate, I don't care what color his skin it is, then walls come down. And Paul wants us to know, Jesus did not go to the cross so we could stay in our own little separate entities doing things the way we like them. He came so we would tear down walls. It's what the church is supposed to do. We shouldn't be talking white churches and black churches and Hispanic churches. We should be talking churches of people who live together in community and do life together in real meaningful ways. It's time to tear down walls. Now, the walls in front of you may be economic or educational or societal. They may be race or gender. But Paul doesn't want us to just say, yay, Jesus tore down our wall between me and God. He did more than that. He gave us permission to bring peace, agents of reconciliation. You see, in Isaiah 57, 19, the prophet speaking of the Messiah says, peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. Now, I'm told that the rabbis used to teach that that was 
peace to the Jews near and to the Jews far. But other scholars have said that soon became to the Jews that were near and to the Gentiles that were far, the Messiah would bring peace, and we know that to be true. No longer an abstract idea. No longer God loves us all, but you stay in the outer court because you're not good enough to be in the inner court. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, when the early church was deciding whether or not to let these non-Jewish people be a part of this new movement called Christianity, in Acts chapter 15, when they got together, the apostles made this decision. This is what it said. Put no difference between us, the Jews, and them, the Gentiles, purifying their hearts by faith. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. I love that terminology. God's already proven he's saving the Gentiles. Maybe he'll even save us. And the reason I want to bring this up today is because my fear for many of us, including my own heart, is that moments we know people who feel like they can't come to church. And we know, no, no, you can come to church. But they don't know it. Because to them there are too many dividing walls. My sin, my attitude, my mistakes, my failures, all of this is present. Church, we are here not to get them to come to a building. We're, to here, we're here to help them scale walls together. Helping them over the dividing wall of hostility into the places of peace. I've only been a part of this church for about six years. I admire this church because it's preceded anything I've experienced in my life. This is a place of peace. I love that in this church there are people who have had epic failures, humiliated themselves and shamed themselves in their sin, and you're welcome here. We've had people who want us to think they've had perfect lives. You're even welcome here. You haven't fooled anybody. Some of the worst actors in the world, but you're welcome here. Your preacher is a failure at every level of his existence, and you welcomed me here. You see, what we have to tell the world is, it's not about us. It's about the work that Jesus Christ did to tear down the things that make all of us feel we don't belong. We are for the outcast and the downcast and those that are mistreated and those that are neglected. We should be fighting for the ones who will no longer fight for themselves because it doesn't matter. That's why the church exists. And that's what Jesus came to do. And the early church realized, if we offer them grace... We might even experience it ourselves. So what does this all mean? Let's go to what we're not without God's grace. And we have peace in God's grace. But why do we have peace? So that we can bring unity. You see, I, I want to say something, and I've been worked all morning to say this line. So I'm just not even going to try to shock you with it. I'm just going to tell you I think this is important. The church is not an organization. It's a new humanity. It's not a business model. It's not a group of people who structure everything so the work's done for you. We are a group of people living in a new world. We're a new humanity. We live in a divided world, but we're going to be undivided. We live in a world that sections everybody off by their differences, and we're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to allow people to be decided by the color of their skin or their gender, or how much money they make, or whether they had an education or not, or whether they went to a certain high school, or graduated from a certain university, or having a zip code in a certain state. None of those things matter here. When we walk in this room, we're all equal. We're sinners saved by grace. Do you know how many people in your world would love to know that God is not a God who keeps a record of their wrongs, but loves them with all the passion of the cross? They don't know it because we don't talk about it. 
We talk about how right we are. How we have all of our little problems lined up in a nice little bucket that Jesus carried away. No, we live under the constant grace of Christ for the purpose of unity. So that together we live. You see, by his death on the cross, he changed my status and your status with God. But by the love of the cross, he changed my status and your status with everybody else. I am no better than any human being no matter what they've done. And I am no worse than any human being no matter what they've done. I am saved by the grace of Christ and so are you. And that makes us brothers and sisters in all of the best ways. And the world is dying to know that there's a place for them where their past is not as important as their future. And that's what Jesus came to do. Verse 19. Consequently, that's an interesting word. Because of all that, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by the Spirit. Together, all of us, snapped together in this amazing kingdom Lego. Every one of us carrying the weight of the other, holding each other together, necessary and important. He made two one. He made one new man, one body, one spirit. Are we catching on what he's doing here? It's not about me, it's about us. It's not about you, it's about we. We have a purpose. He says we're one nation, fellow citizens with God's people. I need you to know that there are so many divisions in our world that people no longer believe that they're a part of anything. If they find two or three people that they can group into something, they will. But we need to know that we are one nation. We're no longer Jew and Gentile. We're no longer male or female. We are one in Christ. We are saved by his blood. And if today you sit in this room and you have not made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, then I ask you today, do you want to be a part of something so much bigger than you that will go on through eternity? Then you give yourself to Jesus and he will bring you in to this nation of faith. No longer based on where you were born, what you look like, how much money you make. It's about your heart and your soul and the price you paid for it. I think it's interesting when you talk about a new nation, and this may make my tail wag and bore you to death, but let's try it. When Noah built his ark, he had three sons. Their names were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, knowing that those three boys populated the world following the flood is an amazing thing. Jew, especially Jewish scholars, like to go back and trace families back to which one of Noah's three boys they came from. I didn't realize this until a very smart scholar in a book pointed this out. He said, in the book of Acts, if you follow the progression, you're going to see God doing something. In Acts chapter 8, a descendant of Ham is saved, the Ethiopian treasure. One family brought back into the fold. In Acts chapter 9, a descendant of Shem, Saul of Tarsus, we know him as the Apostle Paul, his line was brought back into the fold. And in Acts chapter 10, a descendant of Japheth, the Gentile in the household of the Roman Cornelius, his family was brought back in. Isn't God good at doing what he promised he would do? He has been working to bring all people, regardless of nationality, regardless of differences, back to the home, back to the nation bringing all of his promises to fulfillment. He also says we're one family, we're a member of God's household. We talk a lot about Abba Father, 
God being our father. So family is important to all of us. I love being in southwest Missouri. Family is huge here, and I dig it. It's the best part. People love their families. They stay together. They do things together. And as a church, we are not an organization. We're a new humanity that lives together as family. And thirdly, one temple. To become a holy temple in the Lord, built up, where all of us snap in to our place, using our gifts and our abilities and our talents to build up this temple. I have just a moment to do this, but I think it's significant. If you look at how hard God has worked, to bring us all together in worship. And I don't mean on Sundays. I mean in understanding who he is and knowing who we are in him. If you go all the way back to the garden, he walked with Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve sinned. And God had to go for a period of time where he would come visit or dwell with them. And then they're in the wilderness and they build a tabernacle, which if you'll allow the expression, was just this massive mobile home that he lived in wherever they went. And God's presence would come down and sit on the holy seat in their presence. And yet they sinned. And it says that it caused the glory to depart. And then in 1 Kings 8, they built a temple. And they had a holy seat for God there. And it said that he came and yet again Israel sinned and the glory departed, Ezekiel chapter 10. So God sent his son, the incarnation, God as man on earth. And he walked among us. We killed him. But he told us, I'm going to let this happen because I'm going to do something through this you never could do for yourself. And then he told his disciples in a great moment of sadness, I'm going to leave, but one is coming that's greater than me. And he's going to live not with you. He's not going to walk with you. He's not going to be in a tent. He's not going to be in a building. He's going to be inside of every one of us. So God does not dwell in man-made temples, including church buildings. God dwells wherever the work of Jesus Christ is accepted, loved, and honored by faith. You and me. So blah, blah, blah. What have I been talking about? Sometimes I walk off stage and I'll go stand in the back and to, to meet people to prayer station in the back corner. And I'll often stand on that back wall and join you in musical worship because I love it. And I often get back there and I yell at myself, man, you told them all that stuff, but you didn't give them anything good to do. And I think you need my help. So let me tell you what you're supposed to do with this message today. We try to fix racial divides, financial divides, power divides by passing laws. It's never worked. It's never worked. What we do to change the future of injustice in our world, to tear down the walls, to help people over the walls, is if every one of us today prayed a dangerous prayer, God, Take me to an intersection with one person this week, even this day, who needs to know that the mercy of Jesus Christ is real. I want to be that mercy. I want to be that invitation. I want to share with them, it doesn't matter what you've done. Your past is not as important as your future. In the blood of Jesus Christ, he changed your relationship with God, and now he changes your relationship with everybody, including me. No matter where we've been, the words, I love you, forgive me, I'm sorry, can you please allow me to be, again, a part of this family? If every one of us left this place, trust me, and we did the work of reconciliation we've been called to do, If we walk from this place into every intersection looking for one person who feels outcast, disadvantaged, and taken advantage of, and we offer them the mercy and love of Jesus Christ, you don't have to preach a sermon. Love them with your life. 
tear down a wall or help them climb over it and watch what God might do this week. The church will grow, not in number, although it will. The church will grow in heart, in love, in mercy. If you read your Old Testament, we're a nation called to help those who cannot help themselves. And we all know somebody who needs to know that God's love is not conditioned on how good they've been. It's conditioned on how good Jesus was. So instead of being right, let's be righteous. Let's go offer hope. Let's climb walls. Let's tear down walls. Let's do whatever we need to do this week to offer ourselves and everyone we meet this truth. Jesus Christ moved when we needed him to move. Now it's time for us to move. Let's stand together.